Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 21. One. London, like all cities, never truly slept, but there was a quiet moment just before dawn, when the late night brushed fingers with the early morning, after the black cabs changed shifts, but before the buses accelerated to their more urgent daytime tempo. In that moment, the city was quiescent, pulse slow, breath steady and even. The first rays of dawn pierced the fog to light the Thames near Greenwich, and a cleaning woman left the British Museum through a staff door. It was a little early to be going off the night shift, but most night shifts didn't involve disposing of a burned, half-eaten corpse. If the woman had been of her own mind, she would have felt quite justified in skidding off. From inside the woman, Hannah slipped Gerald's sunglasses onto her face, letting the rising sun tint the lenses and obscure her two white eyes. She had done what she could to save the experiment. Only time would tell if it had been enough. Father Manchu stood before what had once been a Roman clockmaker shop. From the outside, it looked abandoned. The windows were boarded over, the boards covered in posters for manifestations, underground clubs, and concerts, which were in turn overlaid by a patchwork of graffiti. The palpable sense of unease about the place peaked as he forced the bolt on the front door, but his blood was too hot to let that stop him, or to bother with the careful work of lockpicking. Inside, Manchu found and turned on the lights, ruthlessly banishing the shadows that clung to the interior. A heavy wooden table dominated the center of the room its surface marred by gouges and burns, from what source Manchu did not want to guess. There were fewer books than he expected. Manchu thought of Asante and her books as interconnected, as though she were part of the archive she had devoted herself to maintaining. Looking at this room, filled with equipment, relics, candles, and powders, he realized that he had been wrong. The archives, which he had thought of as Asante's calling, were simply her day job. This was her work. He thought she had been, not happy, but settled after the trial. That everything had gone back to normal. Or as normal as it could have been with a new cardinal and the rising tide and Grace's defection. But no, standing amidst the detritus of a magical research and development lab, the truth of Perry's confession could not be denied. 
Asante had recreated Team Four. Machu's knees shuddered beneath him and he caught himself against the table, gripping until his knuckles went white. He held the rough edge as though clinging to solid certainties that had gone liquid in his hands, which was foolish. With conscious effort, Menchu braced his knees, released the table, reached up to his throat to adjust his collar. The familiar action centered him, and he strove to put his emotions into order. Asante had lied to him, hidden her work for months. They had had their difficulties. He had betrayed her, yes, but he'd thought they had reached an understanding. Apparently not. By rights, he should call the rest of the team so that they could contain this location and then report Asante to Fox. But as certainly as he knew the proper procedure, he also knew he wasn't going to follow it. Whatever else she might be, Asante was one of his oldest friends and colleagues. She was not some sorcerer gone power mad who desired to uproot creation. If she had gone to London, as Perry had said, it was because there was work that needed to be done. Work. Machu turned, left the shop, and secured the door behind him. He had work of his own. Sal's jaw cracked with the force of her yawn. Team three had landed at Heathrow at roughly ass o'clock that morning, after a hurried departure from Rome under literal cover of darkness. Menchu had gathered her, Liam, and Grace, and driven first to Pescara, where they'd caught a flight to Milan, connecting to London. Sal had managed to catch a few minutes of sleep on the plane, but the longer they sat, the more she could feel the lack of rest catching up to her. At that moment, they were in the back of a minicab, driving through Greater London. They'd been wandering the city for the greater part of an hour, much to the confusion of their driver. For the fifth time, he glanced back over his shoulder to give his passengers a worried look. Where did you say you were going again? Liam hunched over his laptop, grunted, working on it. Then turned south here, now. The driver jumped at Liam's tone and with a screech, turned right across two lanes of traffic. The hour was early enough that this resulted in scattered honks, not the crunch of crushed fenders, but traffic was picking up and the driver looked white beneath his tan. He appealed to Minchu. Father, I'm happy to take any place you want to go, but I need a destination. Sal had some sympathy for the guy. Sure, their group didn't fit the standard profile for a terrorist threat, but they certainly fit the brief for a bunch of weirdos. Sal leaned over to Menchu, keeping her voice low enough that she hoped the driver wouldn't overhear. I know we promised him a good tip, but I think he's going to kick us out pretty soon, fair or no fair. Should have rented a car, said Grace. You can't rent a car without a credit card or a lot of questions about why you don't have one, and I don't know how closely Fox is watching our accounts. Fair enough, said Sal. But we're going to be really easy for the Vatican to find if this guy decides we're too bizarre to be written off as harmless eccentrics and drops us off at the local police station. For the first time since they'd entered the cab, Liam pulled his attention fully from his laptop and checked their surroundings. They were near the center of the city, in a nexus of parks, hospitals, and train stations. We may as well get out now, he said. The interference is bad enough that I, I can't tell whether it's getting thicker. She's somewhere around here, but I can't find Tuna anymore. <laughs> Sorry. No need for apologies, said Menchu as he signaled for the driver to pull over. We'll just have to change tactics. I'm looking for an African woman in her 60s. She might have been with a younger woman in a wheelchair. Grace leaned against a false Corinthian column in the lobby of the only slightly shabby boutique hotel and partook of the simple pleasure of watching Sal in detective mode. Calm and professional, kind but persistent. 
They would have paid cash for the room? Anything that plausibly encompassed traditional police work generally had a centering effect on Sal. It put her in a place where she felt confident of her skills and expertise. That was part of why Grace suggested that the two of them canvass the area. Whatever Asante was up to was going to require all of them to be at the top of their game. And Sal was teetering dangerously on the edge of rage. An edge that had been honed razor thin by sleep deprivation and stress. Have you been having trouble with your computers recently? Internet gone down? Unfortunately, so far, the canvas had not gotten the team any closer to Asante or Sal any closer to equanimity. And now, the hotel owner, in his polite and placable British way, was gently but firmly putting the pair of them out on the sidewalk and closing the door in their faces. It wasn't quite accurate to say the door had been slammed, but it was a near thing. Sal jammed the buzzer a few times, no doubt with the aim of continuing the discussion with a change of topic from, have you seen my friend? To, who do you think you are expelling a detective from your hotel? But there was no response. How desperate are we that I'm the one who's gonna have to stop her from hitting someone? Grace smiled to herself at the thought. Of course, at just that moment, Sal gave up on the door and turned her attention to Grace. What's so funny? Usually, you play a good cop. When we do good cop, punch you in the face cop. Sal rolled her eyes and continued down the street to the next likely business address. That's not a thing. Too bad. Not knowing what Asante was up to, it was hard to make an educated guess as to where she would get up to it. But it seemed reasonable to expect that she would require time, space that she could secure, and privacy. And if Francis was with her, not too many stairs. This is a waste of time, said Sal. She could be anywhere, doing anything. She muttered something else that Grace couldn't quite catch. What did you just say? Doesn't matter. It does, if it's gonna get you arrested for assault. I'm not gonna get myself arrested. Tell me that you weren't two inches from taking out your frustrations on that guy at the hotel. I'm tired, I haven't slept, and I need coffee. I'm allowed to be cranky. Sure, but low blood sugar is worse for you than fatigue, and we already stopped for breakfast, so you might want to use a different excuse. Do you want me to punch you in the face? Grace raised one eyebrow. You are welcome to try. Sal declined the offer. Grace let them walk in silence for a moment and then said, it's not fun when people you care about lie to you, is it? Sal threw up her hands in frustration. What was this auntie thinking? You can't claim to be part of the team and then spend every day for months lying to them. We shouldn't all be finding out about secret team four from N2. She must have had a hundred opportunities to come clean to us and she didn't. I kept my curse a secret from Liam for years. Sal shot Grace a look. And he's still kind of weird about it. Plus, this is different. Your candle, it's private. What Asante does in her off time isn't? It isn't when she's using her off time to undermine what we're doing during our on time. Maybe she was trying to protect us. She had to know that Fox would fall on her head eventually. And she had to know that once he did, he wouldn't care if we claim not to know anything about her extracurriculars. You want me to believe you're upset because we're gonna be in trouble with Fox? Fox can stick his miter where the sun don't shine. Grace smiled at the image. The Cardinal swear Beretti. Sal flipped her off, but it was with considerably less heat than she had managed for her previous diatribe. Get bent. Feeling better? Yes, damn you. Sal stopped to lean against a bus shelter. Already, Grace could see her blood pressure returning to normal. Good, it's hard to think clearly when you're giving yourself an aneurysm. 
Just as well. I was running out of bait. Sal raised an eyebrow. Really? What was next? I was going to ask if this was a weird form of sibling rivalry with your brother. Sal skipped a beat. What are you talking about? Before he got possessed by an angel, you were the one Asante was most likely to take with her on an off-the-books adventure. Sal's posture relaxed a fraction, and she easily waved this away. Please, if I were going to be jealous, it's clear Francis is her favorite. Grace allowed the point and let the matter rest. Come on, let's see if the others are having better luck. On the whole, Asante was not a fan of the British Museum. The Elgin marbles were breathtaking, the Egyptian artifacts world-class, and of course the medieval manuscripts made her archivist's soul swell with joy. But on the whole, the place felt too much like a scrapbook of colonialism for her comfort. Of course, the same argument could be made for certain parts of the Vatican. Certain parts that might, in all honesty, include the archives. Perhaps it was best not to think too much about such things. Of course, at the moment, she had plenty of other things on her mind. First, they had needed to avoid building security, who had been alerted to their presence by the alarm system that went off as Hannah smashed antique pottery and hurled Francis about. And then they had been occupied searching the back corridors for Hannah and the Punic Egg. Asante was somewhat familiar with the layout thanks to previous visits with Gerald, but Perry proved invaluable once he joined them, even as he cursed the limits of his magical senses. It's not that being Perry limits me, he said but we've become much more integrated than I ever was with a body before. I've gotten so used to the way he experiences the world, it's hard to remember that there's anything else to it. Which one are you? Asante asked. Sometimes it sounds like I'm talking to Sal's brother, sometimes like I'm talking to Aaron. Exactly, he paced. You're certain she said city eater? Not something else? Pretty sure it sounded bad. It's... Bad is one way to put it, uh, an old tool for resolving the balance between this world and the outside. It does what it says on the tin, mostly. It eats cities and the earth on which they stand, devours soil, souls, and then itself, consuming all evidence of its passing. We told ourselves we'd never use it again after last time. We? When was the last time? Francis asked before Asante could stop her. Uh, Perry said. It's hard to put modern names to memories and myths. Let's just say Atlantis. Oh, Francis said. Asante had questions. She'd spent months amassing them, but there wasn't time or breath for any of that now. With every moment that passed, it grew more certain that their task would not be to prevent Hana from doing whatever she had come here to do, but to contain the results. They found those results in the dark corner of a boiler room in one of the lower basements. In addition to the old furnace, they found piles of assorted junk, a few cases of janitorial supplies, of dusty it seemed improbable their use could result in anything getting cleaner, and a bloody egg, open like a flower on the industrial tiled floor. A dark, sticky stain that smelled of copper and salt spread beneath it. Of Hannah or Gerald or the city eater, there was no sign. Francis looked from bloody mess to Asante's face. Where is it? Would Hannah have taken it away? No, Perry said. She wouldn't have wanted to stay any nearer to that thing than absolutely necessary. Once the city eater starts working, it isn't picky. It's just hungry. The first order of business was to clear space for Francis and Perry to set up the machine and for Asante to begin her work. 
She'd tried a variety of different materials for marking floor runes, from chalk, too hard to get a line with no breaks in it, to permanent pen, too hard to correct mistakes, to lipstick, too prone to breaking, plus it's smeared everywhere. Ultimately, for industrial tile, it turned out that nothing was a match for dry erase markers. They made a good clean line, and while they were easily erased, they could also be stepped on so long as everyone wore shoes and didn't shuffle their feet while they walked. Asante asked Perry, do you think you can manage to put up a magical do not disturb sign so we can avoid unwanted company? Frances frowned over her device. Eh, if we're too actively concealed, we risk the city eater not being able to find us either. Perry rolled his eyes, an effect Asante suspected did not come from the angel. I would like to state again for the record that trying to lure a monster is a terrible plan, especially when that monster is a city eater. It needs food. Asante said as she scribbled runes on the floor. If it's a newborn, it must need a very specific food. If Hannah hatched it here so close to her theft, that food must be in the area, correct? Yeah. Perry paced around between them, arms crossed, glancing into the corners of the room. It feeds off magical emanations, off age, off history, at first. When it's stronger, it feeds off matter. So we lure it down here and trap it before it's too big. Francis, are we close enough to the collection for your amplifier to work? Asante asked. Just a moment and I'll know. Francis was out of her chair, gliding smoothly between her machine and the laptop she had propped on a flat of paper towels, her tentacles obscured but not concealed beneath her long skirt. Every time Asante saw her move like this, she seemed stronger, more adept although the effort of supporting herself on the narrow appendages had to be massive. Francis checked another reading and spun a dial on the globe at the center of her machine. Yes, I believe so. Francis made a final connection between her machine, which she insisted they should not call an orb, although it was based on the model of the original that had been built by the first team for, housed in the archives, and her laptop. Perfect, it's... The machine made a soft chiming sound. Francis swore, typing quickly, and then rose to check its readings. What is it? Asante asked. Francis did not mince words. It's coming. When? No more than a few minutes. Asante took a deep breath. All right, everyone, you know what to do. Francis, count us down. Bang! The door to the storage room slammed open. Asante jumped and whirled to face the intruder. In the doorway stood Sal, Grace, Liam, and Father Manchu. Asante's world went red. You have the worst sense of timing. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. 
NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Two. Munchie stared at the scene before him. The boiler room filled with dusty cases and cleaning supplies that looked like they hadn't been touched in years, the intricate lines and circles drawn on the floor, and the quietly clicking machine tended by Francis and Perry. He shouldn't be surprised. He knew Asante had not come to London to take tea and enjoy the sights. But there was a difference between knowing and seeing, like the difference between knowing that your partner was having an affair and catching them in bed with your old high school rival. Although until that moment, Manchu would have sworn that the priesthood had saved him from that particular gut punch. Well, that was a reflection to consider for another time. The last words they heard before Sal kicked in the door were a few minutes. A few minutes until what? He'd rather they weren't there to find out. Asante, he said, you need to go home right now. Asante's expression, which had been oscillating between shock and outrage, took a solid turn into disdain. I'm sorry, Arturo, I'm a little busy at the moment. Listen to me. He caught her arm, flinched as she drew back, but held on. When he didn't move, she froze as well. You have, she turned to Francis, how long? Francis held up eight fingers. Six minutes, she told Menchu. Manchu felt a surge of impatience. I can count, you know. Talking to you is not the only thing I need to accomplish in the next eight minutes. Now, speak quickly. We know Hannah is up to something in London. You seem to have a pretty good idea what it is. Tell us what you know, then return to the archives and let us handle it. Why? Because we're cleared for the field and you're not. Are you telling me Fox approved this trip of yours? No, and he won't be happy when I call and tell him that we're here without going to his office first, but... Manchu caught off the incipient protest he could see forming in her eyes. He will live with it. He won't be happy, but that will be a problem for tomorrow. On the other hand, you have been expressly forbidden from the field. If he finds out you're not in Rome, even if he never hears about any of the rest of it. Manchu's gesture took in the magical equipment, sigils, Francis and Perry, and by extension, the former clock shop back in Rome. There's nothing I can do to help you. Asante's face softened and Manchu relaxed until she spoke. I understand, she said, but I don't want your help. What? I never asked you to help me. Not now, not last year at my trial. 
You just jumped in and did what you thought was best. Don't misunderstand, Arturo. I know your intentions are good and noble and your heart is in the right place. But we don't want the same thing. And this is where that becomes a problem. Time had stopped. Manchu could have sworn he felt the world turn over on his poles. All the cliches were coming true around him and he didn't know what to do about it. What are you saying? How long have you opposed the society? Are you working with Hana? Are you trying to let magic in and destroy the world? You've seen what it can do, Asante. How could you? Asante shook her head, as though he were the one being dense. It was possible. He certainly didn't understand what he was hearing. Of course not. I'm trying to save the world. Then we're on the same side. You're trying to save the team which is laudable, but the society is too sad in its ways to see that the old approaches aren't enough. The tide is rising, or the land is sinking. It doesn't matter which metaphor you use. The society is fighting a losing battle unless it radically changes tactics and we both know it's not going to happen. Manchu had heard enough, so you stab us in the back? Five minutes, Francis murmured. Either way, get out or get out of my way. But I'm not going to let your interference doom the city. Knock it off. Grace's voice cut sharp and merciless across their argument. The room fell silent. Grace continued in a more moderate tone. This argument is both important and a waste of time. You are welcome to have it at some point in the future when I don't have to be awake for it, and more importantly, when we are not on a countdown. She turned to Francis, who looked pale. What happens in five minutes? A little less than that now, but we believe that's when the thing that Hana Summon will fully manifest in our world. Here, Francis glanced down at her computer, then up again. Perry says it's called the City Eater. Because it eats cities, Perry supplied. Angels aren't big on nomenclature. Grace nodded. And who in this room is in favor of preventing that? For a moment, everyone remained frozen, not sure how to respond. Grace's expression did not encourage a vocal interruption. Then Liam slowly raised his hand. Sal followed suit, as did Perry and Francis. Manchu put his own palm in the air and turned to see Asante mirroring the gesture. Good, said Grace. She looked at Asante. You have a plan to send this thing back where it came from? The slightest hesitation. Yes, said Asante. Then let's save the city, and after that, you two can debate operational philosophy. Manchu swallowed his anger and his pride. She's right. I know you don't want any help, but since we're here, how can we assist you? Asante didn't seem any happier with the situation, but they had a common goal and a decade plus of working together to fall back on. Surely that could be enough. It's rather complicated to explain, she said. Four minutes, Francis supplied. Then she raised a brow. So I suppose I will explain quickly, said Asante. In truth, the explanations were not onerous. Since the plan had been conceived with only Perry, Francis, and Asante herself available to execute it, it wasn't as if any of the members of Team 3 had a vital role. Liam came the closest to being truly useful. His knowledge of magic wasn't very deep, but computers were still computers, and with him on the laptop, it saved Francis having to go back and forth between her monitors and the machine. Sal and Grace stood where they would be both out of the way and able to intercede quickly in case something went horribly wrong. If the creature broke free of whatever trap Asante had laid, at least it would likely be vulnerable to conventional applications of force. When Manchu asked what he could do, Asante told him, pray for us. 
and was surprised to find she meant it. Prayer was a sort of magic, and they needed all the help they could get. They were less than a minute from the creature's arrival. Asante could feel her heart pounding. At the same time, her mind was strangely calm. This was it. This was what she had been preparing for. Every experiment, every secret, every lie and omission. All of it, so that she could be ready for this moment. Thirty seconds. It was all she had ever wanted. To be the right person, in the right place, at the right time, to make a difference. For her children, for her grandchildren, for the world. The brass and copper on Francis's machine gleamed. It had rather fewer silver accents than the orb in the archives, given the budget differential between being an official part of the society and a secret group scrounging around the edges of the Vatican. But when it was active, as it was now, it glowed with the same warm and constant light. Twenty seconds. The light of the machine flickered, dimmed. She felt the power in the runes on the floor pulse and hum. It's here, she said. On her left, Asante half heard Liam and Francis exchanging a steady stream of readings and adjustments. The light dimmed again, and a shadow appeared inside the circle on the floor. It wasn't black, but gray, with hints of blue and green, like looking over the side of a ship at the heart of the ocean. Its form was loose and shifting. One instant there was a flash of teeth, the next a bit of wing. A moment later it appeared to burst into flame, only to then erupt in tongues and claws. Asante sensed, rather than saw, Manchu moved to stand beside her. The shifting forms of the creature snapped at the edges of the circle, but did not pass over her wards. She waited for it to grow larger, force its way out, but instead it pulled in on itself, becoming more dense, more solid, more... It's transitioning, said Asante, cutting through Francis and Liam's background chatter. Not all demons had a physical form. Many, like Aaron and Hannah, had to borrow a body in order to take action in the world. But this one was trying to shift from being a creature of energy to one of matter. It turned off the interference, she told Francis. We have to force it back where it came from before it solidifies in its physical form. I'm trying, said Francis, but it's not working. It's like, it's like it's being pushed from the other side. Or pulled from this one, said Sal. Hannah called this thing. She could have it on a leash. If we can't force it back, what do we do? Asked Minshew. Give me a minute. Francis was already at Liam's side by the computer. If we can't send it back, we might be able to cut it off from the mystic energy of the museum and trap it in the circle. Asante nodded, understanding Francis's aim instantly. Trap it in limbo, in our world, but without a physical form. That's a good thing, asked Sal. What do we do with it once we trapped it? said Manchu. Let's make sure it stays trapped first, Grace gritted out, and then worry about step two. Asante bent to the floor, using her marker to add more protective layers to the circle. Without a physical body to process nutrients in this world, or a link to the metaphysical it's currently feeding on, it should gradually lose cohesion. Starve to death, in effect, she translated. I have to cut energy to the machine, or the creature will just feed off it. Can your circle hold it on its own? Francis asked. Just a second. Asante drew a last line and quickly scanned her work. No breaks, no gaps. She murmured an incantation and made sure the circle was as strong and whole as she could make it. Her vision grayed around the edges. There was no more time for precautions. If it is now or never, let it be now. Cut it loose, 
she said. Francis grabbed the dial on the base of the machine and spun it all the way to the left. The glow died. Asante checked the circle. The creature shuddered as its connection to the nourishment of the collection terminated. It surged forward in the air only to hit the invisible wall of Asante's wards. The circle held. The shadow fell back and Asante staggered, let out the breath she hadn't realized she was holding. It had worked. They had won. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>